Kathleen Korn, welcome to the Fritankepod. Hello. <laughs> hello, hello. First of all, you have just been awarded the uh, L'Oreal UNESCO Prize for Women in Science. Congratulations to that. Yes, thank you very much. So how does it feel to be awarded this prize? What does it mean to you? But of course, I am uh, very, very happy um, to have received this prize. And, well, I think the main benefit is that is uh, for my personal research is that it, of course, increases the visibility mm. of what I do because uh, I'm a mathematician, but this is a general science prize. So it somehow puts uh, my research in like a larger context. Okay, so you mean that, that it actually acknowledges math- mathematics as a science in a way and lifts that up? Is that how you mean? Yeah, and well, there's one way to put it, but I mean like somehow maybe more specifically my specific type of uh, mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's of course like a bigger thing to get a general science prize than to get like a mathematics prize. Of course, of course. <laughs> so that's, that's very nice. But I guess you would be quite happy as well if you, for example, received the Fields Medal in the <laughs> well, future. Of course, of course, of course. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Yes, slightly yes. bigger prize. Yeah, slightly bigger. But, but what are what are the big mathematical prizes in the world? It's the Fields Medal, and there is something Abel Prize. Exactly, the Abel Prize. Abel Prize. Yes, are there any more that I wouldn't know of? Well, I guess there is certainly more prizes on different levels, but mm. these are certainly the two, the two, the two really big, ones. W- big ones that would be like equivalent to the yeah. Nobel Prize, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, so you res- you are awarded this prize now, and can you tell us a little bit about what is the research about that gave you this prize? What do you do? Yes, I think what makes my research different. Um, somehow from the general market of research, if you want to say, is that um, the type I'm applying mathematics to uh, data science and artificial intelligence problems, Mm. but the type of mathematics that I apply there is pretty unusual. Mm -hmm. So it's not what it's considered uh, typically to be applied math. It is more like an area of mathematics that is considered old and pure and abstract Mm -hmm. and doesn't often see um, applications. Uh, You say it's an old mathematics. Most of mathematics, I guess, is old. Okay, fair (laughs) enough. But I mean, in what what sense is this old and pure? Can you explain it a little bit more? Right. So this, I mean, maybe for um, mathematicians who listen or you Mm. who might know, uh, so this field is called algebraic geometry. Algebraic geometry. Right, Mm. which aims at understanding geometric structures with algebra. Mm -hmm. And um, I know it's one of the pillars of mathematics um, that's like algebra Mm -hmm. next to analysis. And... um, but it's, I don't know how to say, but it, like historically it has really developed that somehow math often is considered, oh, this is pure math and this is applied math. Mm-hmm. And math departments in the world are often sp- split like this. Like they have different research groups, research groups in pure and research groups in applied math. And then as a, a non-mathematician, you might think the definition of applied math is that it's mathematics that you apply mm. to something. 
But that's actually not the case. It is like certain areas of mathematics that are considered applied mm -hmm. and other areas of mathematics that are not. And so I'm sometimes sitting between the chairs, if you, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Like, I wonder why you do that uh, categorization. Is it because applied mathematics is considered to more correspond with reality in some ways, maybe? I don't know. Or? Well, I guess humans like to categorize things. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that is, I think, just something that we do. And then once you have start to shape some sort of box, this box can become very solid. <laughs> mm, mm. So. Mm, okay, I see what you mean. Okay, so, so as I understand it from what I read, you are working with picture analysis, right? Uh, yeah, so that's one of the main uh, research projects mm. that I have um, But it's not so much about trying to analyze just uh, images, but it's trying to um, identify the 3D structure in, in images. Can you, can you turn um, a two-dimensional picture into a three-dimensional picture with mathematics somehow? Uh, right, it's not a single picture, mm -hmm. but if you take uh, several pictures of the same 3D object, then you can, to a large extent, reconstruct your 3D object from that. Mm. And it's a fairly old technology um, that uh, computer vision engineers have developed uh, for a long time. I see. And I companies see. like Google have pushed a lot. Mm -hmm. And, and do, you, do you foresee that this technology that you're researching on now will be used in picture analysis on the internet, for example? Or in what ways are it going to be used, do you think? Well, as I said, this technology is already existing. Ah, okay. And so it is already used. For instance, uh, if you think of a self-driving car... Mm -hmm. Uh, one approach is that the car has to be able to navigate and to do that it uh, for instance builds a 3D model of the local world where it's so that it yeah. can understand space mm. and so in in that you would need this technology already mm. uh, or another th situation um, uh, is for instance uh, it was like let me talk about like future technology mm. Yeah, because we still need to make this technology better, uh, is if you think of augmented reality. Mm. I mean, in augmented reality, you want to put virtual things that are not really there, but into the environment that is there. And our environment is a 3D environment. Yes. And that requires you um, <clears throat> to be able to have a 3D model of uh, where you are at the moment so that you can put something digital there. Mm. But if you also think it from, it from a natural perspective, it's not very surprising that you can reconstruct 3D from pictures because it's what our eyes are doing, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we have two eyes so that we have stereo view and this enables us to see depth. Yeah. And so this is now just somehow what the computer is doing. But of course, there's limitations to the current uh, level of technology. And what my research tries to do is... Um, really understand mathematically what these limitations are. And then this will hopefully inspire uh, engineers to f uh, help them find new ways to make this technology better. Okay, I understand. Okay, let, um, let's leave that for a moment and talk about you. So you grew up to, in Germany and uh, came to Sweden when? Um, I came to Sweden... 
well, on vacation at some point, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I came to Sweden also as a uh, Erasmus student when I was a master student for half a year, um, and so I studied at Stockholm University and took also a few courses at KTH for half a year. Exactly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that was in 2014. And before you came here, you studied computer science in Germany. I studied computer science and mathematics mm-hmm. and I was very motivated student and yeah, I got bachelor and master degrees in both. <laughs> wow. Okay. How old were you at that time? Because you're not so old now. Um, well, when I was here in Sweden, that was 2014 and I got my master's degrees in 2015 and I guess then I was 24, 25. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, when did mathematics come into your life as a child i think it started to come into my life already pretty early um but it was not always somehow my main passion like it varied a little bit between the years but um already when i was in primary school like i i was sort of this child that couldn't really sit still mm-hmm. and what like it was I was busy trying to uh, keep the other <laughs> pupils from focusing <laughs> at school. So um. this is interesting because I I could have it imagined the opposite that someone who loves mathematics is sitting still and making calculations. I think I found school boring, mm-hmm. and uh-huh. that was the the reason. And but I had this math teacher who somehow realized that that is my problem that it's like too boring, and so she started to give me. Um, more difficult puzzles so I could try to do them. And then I was calmer in class, so it was better for everyone. And yeah, I I realized then that I really like to do this sort of thing and just solving puzzles. Like I never, I don't think I necessarily thought of it as mathematics, but just as like, yeah, solving puzzles. Like logical puzzles. Yeah, exactly, logical puzzles and trying to figure out difficult things like that. That became something that I... Uh, just, I don't know, I was just very curious always. And if someone gives me a problem, then I just can't let go. <laughs> Tell me, your parents, were they into mathematics as well? So my father is a um, working on construction site. He's a builder, mm-hmm. builds houses and streets and so on. And I think school was not really interesting to him at all. And he was just happy that he got done with it. But I mean, he is good with numbers and he's doing some sort of small architectural problems on his own. And he can, is very good with calculations, Mm. but it's not that he was ever like a fan of deep math or something like that. And my mom, she, I think she wanted to study mathematics, but then uh my parents come and i come from the eastern part of germany mm. and then uh-huh. you didn't have exactly free choice of your career development mm. so she ended up studying um uh, chemical engineering some i would call it yeah, yeah. um instead so she was interested in mathematics and she was interested in science and mm. and engineering um but yes unfortunately though um after the German reunion for a while her degree wasn't worth anything and so she started uh, to become a nurse no first she was a driving teacher actually mm, mm, but okay. so she left some science and engineering so I have never 
I have never seen her in that job, you know. I see. So like mm. during my whole childhood, she was either a driving teacher or a nurse. I see. Well, ha- have your parents told you anything about what it was like to grow up in East Germany? Yeah, of course. I yeah, mean, <laughs> sure. I mean, I was. Yeah, yeah, I was born 1990, so this was... Just this. after. Well, actually before, because the reunion is the 3rd of October and I'm born 2nd July. So really? I was like, okay. I still have a Eastern German birth certificate. Really? Wow, wow. Okay. But I mean, how was it for your parents to, to sort of change their mindset to, to a more free life? Have have they told you about that? I mean, of course. I mean, it was a big thing. And it's the reason why I don't have a sibling. Because everything was so insecure. And I mean, as I said, my mom's degree wasn't worth anything. And so she had to change job. And then she wasn't happy. And she changed job again. And like, you didn't even know how the economic system went. So I'm not sure if they really felt, I mean, them as citizens, if they felt of it as... I mean, of course, more freedom because at this time she she could have chosen to study whatever she wanted, wherever she wanted. But mm. at the same time, you're all of a sudden living in a system that you don't even know how to navigate. No, exactly. And almost everyone in my age doesn't have younger siblings. Mm-hmm. So I was the last sort of year where in the schools there was actually good number of pupils and then the years below us was less than half and so on and so after me somehow all the schools closed like we had to change schools because there wasn't enough so we were just all the schools were merging and it it was just i think in 2013 when the birth rate in east and west was comparable again wow it's like a whole generation that was like Mm. Lost, but mm. yeah, yeah I see what you mean. I didn't know about this. It's very, very fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sad, of course, in a way. But also good. I mean, everything has its ups and downs. I'm just saying, yeah, it's yeah. not completely. Not everything is better. No, no. <laughs> do, do you think that your own sort of attitude to society and life has been affected in any way from this experience from your parents? I mean, certainly. Um, I mean, my parents did teach me some values um, that like, maybe you don't have everything in life available for you all the time and you should value the things that you have and so on because that was kind of very fundamental in the way they grew up. And um, yeah, I don't know. It was also this uh, feeling when I started to study actually in mm. Western Germany. Mm. Um, already then I started to... S- feel a little bit like I'm in between chairs, like I feel with my research now, because uh, when I was in Western Germany, people would jokes, make jokes about me as being the girl from the East. And uh, when I was back home and visiting my family, then like people would comment like, oh, this is like Auntie Kathleen from the West. Like, so you were always the one from the other side. Yeah, I see, I see. So it's better to live in Sweden now, actually. Okay. I see. Anyway, did your parents recognize your sort of mathematical skills early? I think they did. I mean, I don't know if it was actually my mom or my primary school teacher first. But, I mean, they had a conversation, and so I think they were kind of aware of that. Mm. But my parents were, what I really value about them a lot is that they were open. Like, they didn't push me to do anything. Uh, I mean, they always gave me rather complete freedom and do whatever you want, 
professionally, career development, whatever, like, and they enabled me to start to learn the guitar and piano and like, mm. yeah, so they were just very open and very supportive. And so I could choose interests that, that I liked. And I think that's very good. That's good, it of gives course. You space so you play the guitar and, and the piano? And also the cello, but I'm very bad at the cello because I started when I was 20. <laughs> wow, but you play classical guitar. Yes, I had classical guitar lessons, and I wow. still sometimes. Yeah, my daughter likes the guitar, so I play the classical guitar to her. Wow. <laughs> but okay, but back to mathematics. Um, wh- how old were you when you sort of knew that you wanted to devote your life to mathematics? Um, that was when I was actually already a bachelor student. Mm-hmm. I did not think when I went to, to school that that's something that I would keep doing. Mm-hmm. Like I liked these logical puzzles that I said, but I didn't really think of it as like a job. Mm-hmm. Um, also again, like I'm coming from this sort of family where there was not really academic people mm. and from the countryside in eastern germany and like it wasn't even a thing um that you could be a university professor somehow mm. uh, no but somehow when i was a kid i also really liked music and as i said i played two instruments mm. and so i also thought of studying music but uh, i also already said that my parents tried to teach me that you should um value like the things that you have and Mm. like security was very important in my family because I think my parents went to these insecure times Mm. and I did not study music or I chose not to study music because I wanted job security yeah yeah that's what I wanted and that's why I studied computer science because you have a hundred percent job security after that one and uh, only when I was studying computer science um I realized if you want to understand why does this work? Why does this not work? Why is this a hard problem? Why Mm. can you not make this algorithm faster? Like if you ask the question why long enough, you study math. True. (laughs) So I just uh, came back to math uh, that way. And that was what Bertrand Russell tried. If you want to understand math fundamentally, you have to make it turn it into logic. Right, that is true. But he didn't really make it. <laughs> or what do you think? Um, he got stuck on the paradoxes of logic. Yeah, I don't know. I think everybody gets stuck at some level. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to find, I think, the level that where you feel like, here I have to accept <laughs> to get stuck because, yeah. yeah. I think I As think always know. it's so fascinating with, you know, the story of David Hilbert when he posed, I think it was 23 pl- right. problems left to solve. Right. And the two most important were consistency and completeness. And then comes Gödel and yes, just yes, breaks yes. it all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is beautiful and sad at the same time. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Dramatic. I, I, I definitely agree. But when you, okay, when you studied and you like these logical puzzles could did you have a feeling that your sort of brain worked differently than the other people's because you had so much easier to do this or did you have that feeling i got that feeling <clears throat> not during my studies so much but uh, as I, I studied computer science because i wanted to have job security and so during my bachelor studies i also wondered of course 
okay, now that I am studying this, where am I going to work after these studies? And um, I had this uh, opportunity to have a, a kind of a hybrid bachelor program where I worked part-time at Siemens and mm -hmm. they financed, like they paid some small salaries so I could finance my studies, um, which was very nice. And it was a fun experience. It was a great experience. I also worked at different departments in Siemens and I really could try to find what I want to do But there I realized, I think, that I was different from the people there because no matter in which department I worked, I I just couldn't be happy there and because I felt this is not challenging enough like for my wow. my yeah. needs <laughs> of okay. my brain somehow. And I don't know. Yeah, it was fun, but I also thought like I don't really want to do this. And I had these conversations with colleagues at lunch that had like, no understanding when I and I said I think I want to do a PhD in mathematics and a colleague told me this is just going to waste your time you're not going to get more salary because you have a PhD in mathematics you should just start working now and you're really good and you should just continue and they yeah I don't know and then I realized okay I have to stop working here <laughs> if they want to talk me out of being a PhD student then this is maybe not my place but can I ask you Maybe a personal question, you can decide if you want to answer, but, but people with these special abilities in, the, in their cognitive apparatus, so to speak, do you see downsides of that? Does it have consequences for you in social life or in your life that is a downside of this? Um... Maybe. I mean, I don't really think that I am one of these uh, sort of super stereotypical people mm. that you think of when you think of like star mathematicians that have autism problems or something mm. like that. But but I mean, of course, sometimes it can feel a little bit like lonely if people think it's even weird that you find this beautiful. Mm. Like, I don't know. Um And then it's sometimes not so easy to be part of, like, a group. But um, I don't know. I think in general, I just like that humans are very different mm. from each other. I think it's something um, which is really what is somehow fun <laughs> in society. And uh, Can you sometimes feel that a, a sort of a discussion in, in a group it becomes too trivial and bores you? I don't know. No, I don't think so. No, I think I get easily excited about lots of things in life. Okay. I mean, I like, as I said, I like music. Mm. I like art. I like literature. Um, so I can certainly talk with people about many things. But um, I don't know, maybe because I have this sort of... I mean, if you're good at something, I think you're just less good at other things. And so maybe I'm good at math, but I'm less good at sometimes reading people. So okay. if I'm in a group and then there is this group dynamics and I don't see it... <laughs> Okay, okay. And then I have to ask my husband to uh, <laughs> translate for me, like, what, <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> that's very interesting. But I think that's quite common for a mathematical brain to, to feel like that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I But I, just, I don't think it's very strong for me. Like, no. It's not that it causes major problems, but it sometimes causes funny situations. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, um, Let me ask you this: What is your, what is your view of mathematics from a philosophical point of view? I mean, are you 
mathematical Platonist in the sense that you think mathematical objects exist, or do we, or, or do we invent, do we invent them, or do we find them? You see what I mean? Yes, I think I see what you mean. I think it depends on. I think it depends a little bit, um, but. I would rather say that I do believe that they exist because as that my specialty is geometry. And if you look in the world, geometry is just everywhere. Mm-hmm. And symmetries, which uh, not just mathematicians, but most humans enjoy symmetry. And mm-hmm. that's proven. Like we find symmetrical faces yeah. beautiful, etc. Mm-hmm. We like symmetrical shapes like snowflakes and so on. And all of this is in fact geometry. Mm-hmm. So it does exist. But so, so I believe that It exists a priori, but to be able to work with it, we have to construct some larger apparatus. Mm, tools. So right, to exactly. And then is the question there, I think you get into the question. And you go back to Girdle, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you have a powerful toolbox, then it has its boundaries. Yeah, yeah. So you, what you're saying is that we we invent a lot of mathematical tools, but there are mathematical objects that ha- exist in a in a sense. I think they exist mm. just in yeah, they exist in nature. Yeah. At least they exist in the sense that they could not be otherwise. A prime number could not be other in another way in right. another part of the universe. Right. <laughs> so so in that sense, it's it's universal yeah. and yeah, uh, uh, the, yeah. Because this, as you know, of course, has been a controversial issue in mathematical philosophy for forever, you know. Yes, 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 I know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like to take two strong sides. I like to listen to uh, yeah. everybody's opinion. And uh, yeah, I think it's good to have this discussion. But at least for me, when I, you know, I, I can relate so much because being interested in mathematics myself, I can relate to when I, when I as a child for the first time realized that uh, the system of 10 a system of 10 that is the base of our mathematics it could have been anything else right that's arbitrary and uh, i remember you know the feeling when i as a child sort of realized that i said that that is a social contra- construct it could be right. 8 or 16 or 2 which is the binary and <laughs> and it's completely equivalent yeah or isomorphic as i guess it's called Yeah. Very good. <laughs> it's interesting that you realized that as a child. I only realized that, I think, when I was a bachelor student. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I was a super nerd when I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. Uh, no, but, but going back to Gödel, I mean, what, what kind of philosophical consequences do you think it has that Gödel proves that truth is not equivalent to probability? Because something can be be true and unprovable. That's what he shows. Right. The, I mean, what I does mean, it, it mean depends to, you? to me personally. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, in some sense, I think it gives even some relief because it means that, like, even in your own field, you, it's 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 perfectly fine if you cannot prove everything, because <laughs> <laughs> okay. you might even not be able to, and you don't even know. <laughs> no. So it's, I think it's actually a relief. Okay. <laughs> it makes me feel relaxed. Oh, that's that's an interesting take. I never thought about that point of view. <laughs> but uh, 
But on the other hand, who was he? Andrew Wiles proved Fermat's theorem. Uh, what is it? Over 300 years later or something like that. Yeah, so actually I had a class with Andrew Wiles and that was really? one of the things I found really inspiring. You studied for him? Um, well, there is this, um, it's called the Heidelberg Laureate Forum. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever heard of no. that? Um, it's a German initiative, um, but I do think that they allow students from outside Germany. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but it's it's a very great initiative mm-hmm. where they invite, I think on a yearly basis, um, people who have been awarded the big prizes, mm-hmm. you know, like the Fields Medal, uh, Turing Awards. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can apply when you are a student um, to go and visit this event. And um, so I went there uh, when I was still a student in this tiny Western German town. Mm-hmm. And then that year, Andrew Wiles came and he gave a very inspiring class where he explained to us sort of very young students from different mathematical and computer science backgrounds the main steps of his proof. Wow. Mm. And yeah, that was a really great experience, actually. And you could understand it? Yeah, I think I could understand it. I was interested in um, algebra already at the time. And uh, yeah, Mm. the parts, of course, that one. But of course, you cannot understand the details Mm. because it's a very long technical proof. Mm. But uh, also the way he explained it, it, was very clear. Mm. So I mean, that showed me a lot of things that like, but again, I don't feel, I think it rather gives me this relief again, like, okay, like if I'm not able to prove something now, but maybe I can prove it in 20 years. Mm. Like, I think it's obviously a positive thing. Mm. And I also learned uh, then that how important it is to be able to communicate your ideas so yeah. that other people can understand them. And uh, even if it's such a long technical thing to break it down Mm. that was very interesting as i remember it he presented his proof and then it was actually an error in it someone discovered then he went back for a year yes solved it (laughs) yeah but i think that's not very surprising for an endeavor of that size no that's that's true do you sometimes feel i mean if you're working on a mathematical problem can you can you can you sometimes feel that it's sort of um overheats your brain i mean so it gets uh, um, i don't know how to say this uh can you feel that you're sort of getting um <laughs> like some existential C- can you feel unease <laughs> i think yes of course again i think this is like sort of uh, the two sides of the coin mm-hmm. like on the one hand math is so nice mm. For those people who do not, I mean, there's all these people who say who don't like mathematics and so on, but I think, and they think it's, mathematics is difficult, but I think, I mean, mathematics, to be honest, is easier than the real world problems. You know, like, mm. I don't know, maybe like just 
trying to buy a house, you know, like this is a difficult problem and like yeah. you don't understand because typically when you're in the real world, you do not know what the rules are of the game that you play. There's you so many unknown facts. factors. You don't mm. have all the facts. You don't know anything. So it's very, very difficult to navigate the real world and spontaneous crisis can happen at any time and so on. This does not happen in mathematics no. because you're always in the sort of safe environment and so that is very, very nice and so it generally gives me ease, I, I think. Mm. But then, of course, the job of being a mathematician comes with that pressure to publish. So I think sort of the unease I have from not being able to solve something rather comes from there. Uh -huh. Because I have only limited time, right? I have to perform. You have to get things out. And so if you're stuck on something too long, at some point you have to make the decision, like, do I let it go for the moment? And do I invest my time into something else? Because... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That that is like I think a problem. But 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 I I definitely understand what you're saying. But I'm tr I think I'm trying to get to something else, which is: Have you ever felt that you you try to solve a problem and you sort of reaches the cognitive limits of your your capacity, and you can feel that if you could only push it a little <laughs> little bit longer, you would do it. But it's like hitting the roof. Yes, yes, of course. I mean, I think this happens several times and it happens again and again. I mean, it, it it's does. like okay. when you're trying to do a 9,000 piece puzzle and mm, yeah. you have this piece in your hand and you know it has to go here somewhere, but you just do not know where it's supposed to go. And <laughs> it's just this amazingly big thing. And mm. it certainly happens quite a bit. And mm. yeah, it's difficult sometimes. With, uh, and what do you do then? Do you go out running or do you take a glass of wine or what, what helps? <laughs> For me, it helps to... I cannot sit in my office when I solve math problems. I have to... I have to be somewhere else. Like, mm -hmm. I like hiking in the forests. Wow. We have now a beautiful house in the Swedish forest. We only have three neighbors that we see. Wow. It's very calm. Um, so, yeah, I like to go out. And, and then your brain works on Yes. It best works there. or in, So either in the forest or in the shower or on the train. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And yeah, I have a very supportive husband. Like he sees, like the moment I step into the door, and he's like, he just sees at my eyes that, like, okay, there she's stuck in the math world, and <laughs> okay, I have That's to take fun. care of the kid today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I understand. Yeah, that's fantastic. And that's great because he's not a mathematician, so yeah. it's really amazing that he has this ability. Although he does not feel the beauty of mathematics, but he allows me to have it which is really really great i Fantastic. think many people would not do that <laughs> because for example we in my family we're just now watching this tv series the queen's gambit mm. about this super yes. chess yes, playing yes. woman and she visu visualizes the games in the roof yes, yes, she, yes. have you seen it yes, okay, we have okay, seen so, it. okay so so she actually visualizes it in, in in the in the roof and uh, and solves problems do you visualize mathematics in that sense that you can see the numbers and yes you do, you do that <laughs> yes That's i think very so interesting because I said my specialty is geometry so it is very visual yeah um, so I'm always running around and trying to imagine high-dimensional curvy objects. <laughs> <laughs> high dimension, as uh, more than three dimensions. Yes, most of the things that are interesting are happening in more than three dimensions. <laughs> but that's that's very hard to visualize. It's very hard to visualize. <laughs> and crazy things happen, yeah. 
Have you ever tried to paint what you see? No, because I'm not really good at art. No. That's okay. very sad. I'm oh. not a good... <laughs> I can barely draw a circle on the blackboard for my students, so <laughs> it's really bad. I'm more the musician, but it's very difficult to put uh, high-dimensional mathematics into a <laughs> musical piece, I guess. Uh, oh, I must ask you something that someone asked me the other day about geometry. If you have a triangle... The sum of the, what you call it in English, the, the sum of the, the angles, angles the... is, what is it in a triangle? It should be 180. I'm really yes. bad with actual numbers, by the way, but it should be 180. And, and, uh, and the square, it's? Four times 90. So you should 360. be 360. Okay. Would it be mathematically correct to say that a circle is like... An object where the corners, the number of corners goes towards infinity. Yes, exactly. That's how I like to think of circles. You do. <laughs> and would the angle, the sum of the angles be infinite then? Um, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I the, guess. You're the mathematician. I'm asking you. <laughs> I think so. Okay. That's interesting. <laughs> I haven't thought about circles that way before, but okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I tried to once. Uh, my husband, who's not a mathematician, he doesn't believe in infinity. And <laughs> I tried several <laughs> times throughout our years to like show him infinity. And like, one way I tried to do this, like try to make like, a polygon with more yeah. and more edges and like you will get a circle. You see, there is your infinity. And he's like, no, it's a circle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, a, f- a few more things I want to ask you before we end. <clears throat> you, your research is, of course, going to be applied in artificial intelligence in many ways. What is your sort of philosophical view of arti- artificial intelligence? Do you think, for example, that we will be able to create conscious machines? This is always the very difficult questions, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where there's not really a um, right or wrong answer, I guess. Um, I think it depends. I mean, as a mathematician, I will, of course, say that it depends on your definition of consciousness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there's a few of them around. Um, But I think we will certainly create something that feels like consciousness, I would say. I think Mm -hmm. we can do that. But in what sense does it depend on the definition? Because would you say there could be a definition that excludes it from rising in a silicon object in the same way it rises in a coal-based object, the brain. Aren't they the same? Or do you, do you have an opinion that the brain is fundamentally different from anything theoretically possible to build? Um, I mean, that's not exactly what I'm saying. I mean, it mm. depends a little bit on... I don't know. I just feel that the current state of the art where we are in, in, in artificial intelligence is... Um, I don't know how to say like I don't think it, well, the methods that we currently have without really developing like yet a complete new evolution type of mathematical mm. tools I don't think that that the current tools will uh, will get there um, but yeah I also think that I mean again just from sort of the logical perspective that uh, no matter with what toolbox you work with you will not, never be able to build everything with it Mm. so um, i don't know yeah we'll see we will see exactly 
But we will get either way something which is very close to, to, to what you're asking for and whatever practical impacts that have might not really matter very much. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, mm. uh, the impact might be the same no matter if it's the real thing or yeah. almost the real thing. Do so. you think we will find ourselves developing ethical rules for how we should treat the machines? Yeah, maybe. I think so. Mm. I think that's certainly something... That will maybe happen. When Are you worried? Like some scientists say that the machines might be dangerous to us in the future when they develop conscious intelligence. I would not exclude it. Mm. Let's see it like that. I mean, um, it might be difficult to to develop something that is 100% safe, for sure, because mm. we just don't. I mean, it depends maybe. I mean, part of my research is not just this 3D reconstruction of pictures, but I also hope that in the long term, my type of mathematics, together with lots of other types of mathematics, will actually help with this uh, endeavor of trying to make artificial intelligence more explainable and more transparent. Mm. And we're pretty far from that at the moment mm. because uh, we just don't have a very good theoretical understanding of it. Mm. Um, and so that's also one of the things that I'm trying to push Okay, very exciting. Okay, I think we should end there, actually. Uh, on the 8th, 8th of March, you will receive this prize for Women in Science, um, L'Oreal and UNESCO Prize. Once again, congratulations to that. Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen Kohn, for coming to Fritankis Pod. Thank you. Thank you.